0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, page 57. If you're using the Pew Bible, we're going to read verses 1 through 21, considering the uh, continuing to consider the, the Great Red Sea event. I promised we'd look more at that while well, we can see course, that that's what the, the Israelites do in this great chapter, Exodus chapter 15. So let's worship the Lord then by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word, Exodus chapter 15 and verses 1 to 21, the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders you stretch out stretched out your right hand the earth swallowed them till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the peoples pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray again seeking his blessing come lord god we pray uh, to your people this evening show yourself even for us to be the god who is our strength and our song even the the god of our salvation may we experience your saving grace as you would come to us and sanctify us by your word again this evening grant O lord god that we would receive it by faith that we would store it up in our hearts and that we might live by it in our lives Hear us and bless us for the the glory of your great name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we continue to to consider this great event, the event of the Lord delivering his people from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And as we consider the event from the text this evening, I I think we do well to ask the question, why? Why did the Lord do it? What was his purpose? What was his plan? What was his chief end? One helpful way, I think, to answer that question is to think again about the purpose of the book of Exodus. Exodus. What is the message of Exodus? We might recall the uh, the sermon introduction that we heard so many weeks, months ago now. Matthew Zell showed us that Exodus is about God preserving his people, delivering his people, and dwelling with his people. We might say he preserves and delivers his people in order that he might dwell with them. You may recall that Matthew took us from the very beginning of Exodus to the very end of the book of Exodus where we're told how and the, at last the Lord did just that, right? The Lord came to his people as the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was the, the great fulfillment of God's covenant promise. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will dwell with them. And there the, the Lord was dwelling with his people. What an important event that was. Well, what an important event this is, the, the Red Sea event and if these two events are, are so important to the message of the book of Exodus and the Bible in general, it shouldn't surprise us to see them connected. And we see that in our text this evening. If you look at verse 17, I think we see what is such an important verse in, in bringing out that Exodus message. It's really what we There is this this promise that just as God guided the people through the Red Sea, he will guide his people all the way until he brings them to their inheritance. But but there again, why has God preserved and delivered his people Israel? In order to dwell with them. And what we see here is that really the message is that he, he has Delivered them, and he will most certainly bring them to the place where he will dwell with them. It says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. But in fact, note something truly amazing in the text here. Not only will it happen, but in a sense, it has already happened. Look at what it says just four verses. Earlier in verse 13, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So there's sort of a, an already not yet dynamic going on here. In fact, we, we really saw that even in, in chapter 14 with the, the presence of the pillar of cloud and, and of fire in the sea there already, there was God present with his people they were sort of dwelling amidst his his holy abode even then i promised last week that we would concert uh, further consider how this great salvation event really teaches us about the saving grace of jesus christ and i think we see that as we we consider this event not only uh looking at it the way it's described here in these chapters in exodus but also looking at the way the bible uh, in other places looks back on this event, and it answers for us the question: uh, what, what kind of de- deliverance do we need in order to be brought into the presence, uh, uh, God's presence, and, and dwell with Him in His His holy abode? Of course, we know the answer, don't we? We need a deliverance from our sin. It's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin which would prevent us from ever entering into His holy presence. And I think we see that as we think about how the Bible teaches us about this Red Sea event. Our message this evening is this, that the Lord delivers his people from their sin in order to guide them into his holy abode. I want to suggest three things which we can learn about this great deliverance from sin. We'll consider how it is a deliverance from the guilt of sin and then secondly, that it's a deliverance from the reign of sin, and lastly that it is a deliverance unto worship. So consider first our deliverance from sin's guilt. Uh, the prophecy of Micah, I think really helps us to, to see this. Micah helps us consider the event really through the lens of the, uh, of the uh, our text this evening, the Exodus 15. Uh, worship of, of of Israel after the event. Turn in, the, in your Bibles if you'd like to see this yourselves. To the prophecy of Micah, the very end of the book of Micah, Micah chapter seven, that last little section, verses eighteen through twenty. Micah, Micah, as he writes, he kind of recalls the way that that Israel uh, described the event using poetic. Language and worshiping and, and singing. They sung about how the Lord had, had taken their enemies and had hurled them into the depths of the sea. There's an, an image, God taking the Egyptians and hurling them into the sea. That should have been permanently etched upon the, the minds and upon the hearts of the people. And Micah uses that imagery, imagery as his prophecy concludes. But again, for Micah, well, what is the great enemy from which Israel needs? Deliverance? What is the great enemy that that prevents the people from entering into God's holy presence? What does it say in verse 19, the last part of the verse? You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, if you keep your finger there for for a moment on this first part, the reason I'm focusing particularly on the guilt of of sin as opposed, to the, as opposed to our sinfulness, as opposed to the sinful inclinations of our hearts is because that's really what Micah does. It says in verse 18, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Forgiveness. I wonder if there are any here who struggle with doubts that you were truly forgiven. Has God truly pardoned all of your sins. If so, you need to see this, and you need to see it well this evening. Now, now, I'm not suggesting that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad thing to, to think about whether we truly are in the grace of Christ. Indeed, if if we're in a place this evening where we are content to be living in our sin. We're not battling against it. We're just giving ourselves completely over to sin. And and, and we feel like, well, we don't want to be feeling guilty about that. Well, you're obviously not in a good place spiritually if you're walking in sin, living in sin with no feelings of guilt. Israel's story is a, a great warning to hypocrites those who know nothing of true repentance are not to be presumptuous about forgiveness simply because they're part of Israel, as it were, or part of the, the covenant community. We know that tragically many of these Israelites who passed through the Red Sea ended up dying in unbelief. Indeed, so it would be for so many throughout the, the history of, uh, of the nation of Israel and so the prophets like Micah here really were written in part to the covenant people in order to show them the, the, their need of the true grace of God's covenant. And so church member or not, if, if you're here this evening as one who needs to truly experience the saving grace of Christ for the very first time, uh, come and see this as, a, as an invitation, right? Come and receive true forgiveness, Without Christ, just imagine it this evening. Without Christ, where are we? We're really standing right there where the Egyptians were. We're standing between two walls of water of the judgment of God, which are about to fall and collapse and engulf and destroy an unbelieving and rebellious apostate world. But look at what Micah says. He asks the question, who is a God like you? Who is a God like this, one who who can pardon sins? We know the answer he 's a God who, who who did everything right he 's a God who even sent his own son to come and die on the cross to, to to pay for the sins of sinners, just like you and me and the invitation this night this night is for any who have never trusted him. If you would look to him and repent. And believe you will be saved. And so we can see the Red Sea event is as, as part of the wonderful proof. Forgiveness is true. If you're a, a true believer and you struggle to believe it, I don't know what reason might be hindering you from truly resting in the, the, the saving grace of God is forgiving mercies. Maybe it's a sin you committed in the past that's just so great that you have a hard time believing God could truly forgive you. Or maybe you're continuing to struggle with sin in your life, and though you struggle against it, you doubt, has God really forgiven me for this sin? Sometimes you uh, you can affirm the reality of forgiveness in your head, but the way it was one, describe, one once described, it's like you, you carry around, hanging from your heart, a sign with, with big letters that says, guilty, guilty. You, maybe you live in fear that that one day you're going to wake up at the judgment and find out that That that, that God really was just deceiving you. It was all a lie, right? And what kind of God is this? Well, maybe he's a God who just can't wait to see the look on your face when he finds out, ah, you're not truly forgiven. Off to hell you go. It's true, and we know so well that our sins would prevent us from entering into the presence of the holy God. But that is what makes it so amazing what God has done just imagine it again as you think about the red sea events they there there your sins were there as the great enemy and they were pursuing you they were thirsting after your blood they were they were saying to use the language of our text this evening verse 9 i will pursue i will overtake i will draw my sword my hand shall destroy them but what happened God came, and he came with, with holy zeal, with, with fury and wrath. It's like he was angered by the thought uh, of, of the sins of his people, consuming them. And so he came, and he consumed them. Christ came. Christ came, and he, he took your sins, and he cast them into the depths of the sea. And he calls you this evening to, to picture it, to believe it, to never doubt it. To let that truth be etched upon your heart, even by what happened at the Red Sea event. Think on what your, your Savior has done for you. And as Moses told Israel, then stand firm and do not fear. Trust the Lord. As Moses said of the Egyptians, these Egyptians, you see them, you will never see them again. So it is with your sins. They will never, ever rise up again to accuse you. And it's all because of Christ. It's all because of his great salvation. We marvel at the wondrous mystery of how he brought it about. Jesus himself was the one who was cast into the sea, as it were. He was the one who came under the wrath of God's judgment, uh, which was due us because of our sins. The, the, the Lord is indeed, on the one hand, he is the man of war. He is the the, the, the conquering Uh, King, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also the lamb who was slain. In fact, it's because of Christ that that for Israel, really for believing Israel, really for for the elect, the Red Sea event can be seen as something of a baptism episode. That's the way it's presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul recounting the, the Red Sea event writes how they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea, and interestingly he says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses, isn't that interesting? You might recall we saw at the end of chapter 14 how it was, it was significant that the people of God, not only did they come to fear the Lord and believe the Lord, but they came to fear, or they came, sorry, to believe Moses. They were sort of, baptized into Moses, I suppose, in the sense that they, they came to see the important role that Moses would play as the covenant mediator, and they were trusting him, believing that God had raised him up for that important role. In this way, of course, we know that, 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 that Moses played and uh, functioned as something of a type, a, a picture of Jesus Christ. And so those who, who truly believed were baptized spiritually, ultimately not into Moses, but into Christ by the Spirit, that the elect were united to Christ by faith. Of course, baptism wonderfully pictures that forgiveness we're talking about, that that forgiveness of sins that comes uh, by grace through faith, uh, through Christ. The guilt of our sins are, are washed away by his precious blood By God's providence in in the coming weeks, we're going to get a lot of opportunities to witness that as we've got a lot of baptisms which will take place here. And so God has given us that sacramental, visible word picture, which pictures the reality of our forgiveness. But we see that pictured at the Red Sea events, don't we? Forgiveness, deliverance from the guilt of your sin. See it. Believe it. Praise God for it. And not only from the guilt of sin, our second point this evening, we see how this event teaches us about our deliverance from the reign of sin. You might ask, well, where do we see that in the text? Well, look at verse 18 and ask the question, will the Lord bring into his holy abode a people who are still under the dominion of sin? No, what does it say? Sin is not the one that will reign. It says the Lord will reign forever and ever. And indeed, we know that Israel's redemption is a great picture of that greater redemption, deliverance from bondage to sin. The the people needed to be set free, set free so that no longer they would be serving that enemy's sin, but that they might be free to serve the Lord. If the Red Sea is a, a, a baptism event, then of course we're reminded that baptism is a wonderful picture of regeneration, that that new birth, that work of the Spirit by which we're given new hearts. It also serves as a a powerful reminder of our need of that work in our hearts, our need of regeneration. While we're in bondage to sin, we we are not free to serve the Lord. That's a truth, by the way, which is so wonderfully expressed in that prophecy of Zechariah, which we sung earlier. What a fitting verse to reflect upon in the season where we remember the advent of Christ. You may recall that That after the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah prophesied of the Lord saving. He had come to save his people from their enemies. And why? So that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, Zechariah prophesied, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in holiness and righteousness. Excuse me. Delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Luke chapter 1, 74 and 75. Well, again, who was the enemy? The great enemy was not Rome as in the days of Jesus or uh, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, as in the days of Moses. The enemy was sin. And our Lord teaches us so well. John chapter 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's it's, it's amazing that the Jewish leaders had just said to Jesus, we've never been enslaved to anyone, right? What a joke. Slaves to Egypt, and even in the days of Christ, there were Roman soldiers patrolling the streets. But more than that, their opposition of Jesus showed that they were in bondage to a far more powerful and sinister master than Caesar Slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. Since sin, it deceives us as, as fallen sinners. It deceives us into thinking that it is our servant, right? The, the, the thief who steals, he, he believes that he's being served so well by his stealing, right? Look at how, I, how well I benefit from all of my stealing. Go out and take whatever I want. All kinds of free things, right? It costs me nothing. Really? Well, we know the truth. He's in bondage to that sin, and in fact, it's it's destroying him. It is a cruel master. It will demand everything, even his life. The wages of sin is death. And thinking back to the, the Red Sea event, ironically, I think we see this so powerfully illustrated in Pharaoh himself. The cruel master was himself the slave, wasn't he? Pharaoh was the slave to sin, I mean, think about it. In fact, if you look back at our text and flip over to chapter 14 and look at verse 5, it really is truly amazing what we see there. We read about, we read, when the king of Egypt was, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Just imagine that. And Pharaoh's foolish pride had already all but destroyed Egypt. What did it take him for actually to to come and, and make the decision to pursue Israel again? Well, we know the answer, his bondage to sin. We know that the Lord removed all restraining grace and gave him over to that sin. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh. We might ask the questions, why weren't Pharaoh's counselors trying to say, uh, excuse me, have you, have you forgotten what's just been happening? Do you really want to go through this again, Pharaoh? Why weren't they trying to stop all of the madness? Well, verse 17, chapter 14 tells us that their hearts were also hardened. And so this is such a perfect picture of what we all are by nature. We're all in bondage to sin. In fact, again, Tragically, many of those very, those very Israelites who passed through the Red Sea on dry land—they in the end would show that their hearts were no different than the heart of Pharaoh. And here again, so it would be with the with the, the covenant nation. Their unbelief and covenant covenant making, uh, covenant breaking rebellion would prove true. What the Apostle Paul would later write. In Romans chapter 9, he would write that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Sadly, for so many of them, their end would be just like the end of Pharaoh. They would come under the judgment. They would show that they, too, had truly never come to know the Lord, know that the, the, that the God of Israel, he is the Lord. You remember how later with, when, when uh, the, the Lord would speak through the prophet Ezekiel and he would speak of the judgment that would come upon the people with words like this according to their way I will do to them and according to their judgments I will judge them that's Ezekiel seven twenty-seven. 27 and do you remember what he says uh, says next in fact it's that repeated statement throughout the book of Ezekiel it says and they shall know that I am the Lord and they shall know that I am the Lord. Like Pharaoh, sadly, they would come to know that he's the Lord, not by salvation, but by coming under his judgment. Bondage to sin, indeed, sin which leads to judgment. But wonderfully, what's the good news? The good news is that that the Lord delivers his people from such bondage by his grace. Wonderfully, Ezekiel spoke also of that, that freedom. We know that it It would happen only by the sovereign grace of the God who shows mercy to those to whom he will show mercy and have compassion on those to whom he will have compassion. But this same God promises, he promised to the the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, there's, there's regeneration. Oh, the blessing. The blessing of being set free from that cruel master sin. The blessing of being given that new heart. Being freed from bondage to serve a new master. To serve Christ. To serve the Lord. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. But what does Paul go, go on to say? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, there's the Lord that you want to be serving. There's the Lord to whom you want to be a, a slave and a servant. I hope this evening that you know him. I hope this evening you know the freedom of belonging to him, the freedom of, of serving him, because he's the one who gives you not death, but life as, he free, as his free gift. Indeed, to know him and to serve him, that is life, is it not? In fact, in order to give you that life, here's a, here's a staggering thought this evening. In order to give you that life, Christ himself, in a sense, he was willing to become the slave, wasn't he? Doesn't Paul say in that same chapter, Romans 6, how Christ, well, he, he came under the dominion of death. Chapter of Romans 6, verse 9. But, Paul says, praise God, no longer, no longer is he under the dominion of death. Christ broke the power he broke the reign of sin by his own death and his resurrection from the dead and it's in union with him that we are free we are no longer under the guilt of sin and we are no longer under the reign of sin we have been delivered we are free and to what end well that brings us to our last point this evening the lord delivers his people from their enemies, and he guides them unto his holy abode. And what do they do there? They worship. They enter into worship. That's our last point. The Lord's deliverance is a deliverance unto worship. And did the Lord not say, I will gain glory? I will gain glory. Pharaoh was exalting himself. He was seeking the glory for himself. But no, The Lord said, I will get the glory over Pharaoh and over his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And we know how God brings glory to himself. He he brings glory to himself in all that he does, even in judgment, even as he judges the wicked. But what is it that, that gives God the greatest glory? Is it not in lavishing his mercy, his grace upon his people? showing them grace such that they might then turn and, 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 and worship him and sing to him to the praise of his glorious grace. So back to the beginning. Why is it that God delivered his people at the Red Sea? What was God doing? What was his purpose? What was his chief end? His chief end was to receive the greatest glory as his 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 delivered people would at last arrive at their inheritance, the, the very place where God Himself is made to dwell the God Himself dwells in all of his glory, and they are made to enter in and to worship him. Here again, this is this is this is not just about these Israelites, is it? Many of them never did truly enter in. They never truly knew the Lord. But this is about Christ, and this is about all those who are truly in Christ Jesus, this is not ultimately about the worship that took place at the shore of the Red Sea. It's not even ultimately about the worship that took place at the, at the temple in the earthly Jerusalem. It's about that heavenly tabernacle where God is leading and guiding us. The place where Christ has already brought us, the Bible tells us. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to Jesus. You've come to that sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, as it tells us in Hebrews 12, 22 and 24. To what end? Why has God brought us there? Why has God given us this, this Red Sea event as a means of assuring us that we are forgiven and that we are freed from the reign of sin? To move us to worship, to worship the Lord. Just think on that this evening as we conclude. This is, this is application, both by way of encouragement and exhortation. Two, two things we can say about worship this evening. One, one is that, that worship is a result of that freedom, that the freedom from the guilt and the dominion of sin. Why has God forgiven us? Has God not given us sufficient reason to worship him? We are free such that we can worship. Worship ought to be this wonderful expression of the truth that we are free. And worship is a means by which we are further set free. We are strengthened in the grace of Christ and and, and enabled more and more to live in that freedom. We know that worship is a means of grace, isn't it? That is to say that our enjoyment of those, those means of grace that God has given us, the word, the sacraments, prayer, well, they're always means that we enjoy in the context of worship, corporate worship, and even private worship. Should that not move us to give ourselves diligently to those means Uh, of grace, to give ourselves diligently to the worship of God's people, and and to see all of life as worship, indeed, as Christ commands through his apostle. In that very same chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 13, we're commanded, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Isn't that beautiful? Present yourselves to God. That's worship language, isn't it? It's worship language, and even though it speaks to, yes, worship, but it speaks to to all of life, which is to be seen as worship. Just as we see later in Romans chapter twelve, where Paul says, I, "I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship." This week, we we learn about that worship as we consider the the uh, Exodus fifteen, Song of Moses worship. But in the coming weeks, let us also to be. Eager to learn about it, as we learn from all of Israel's mistakes, Paul will show us. Thinking back to First Corinthians ten in his letter to the Corinthians about how Israel's sin in the wilderness is such a warning against every form of false worship, idolatry in every form, in, in, uh, in immorality in every form of sin. It's a call to worship God by walking in that true holiness to which he calls his people. Let's be encouraged to do that. Are we a forgiven people? Are we a free people? Are we a people who belong to Christ? Shall we not then, by God's grace, and in all that we do, yes, in our worship and in all of our life, perfect holiness in the sight of our God? Let us purpose by the grace of Christ to make our entire lives lives which sound forth the song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt them exalt him. Let that be our song. Let's pray.